The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I don't get it. How could I be the biggest energy hog in Portland? I built my entire campaign on being green and energy efficient. Air conditioner. I rarely use it. If it's too hot, I open a window. I like the fresh air of Portland. Do you keep the heat on all the time? I just put a sweater on. I love sweaters. Okay, what about the fridge? There's a small refrigerator. Do you open it a lot? Do you close it? No, you know, I like to think ahead. In, out. And I replaced the bulb in there with a, with a lower watt. It was 15 watts, and I thought that was too high. I went to 7.5. Right, what about electric razor, toothbrush? I've got one of those razors for survival. You know, you actually crank it and it runs for a while like that, and you can you can shave. You, really crank, the, you crank, crank the razor. Crank you know, razors. Like, crank razor. Wait, hold on a second. Wait. What's that sound? I don't hear anything. It's like a pulsing. Right. Rhythmic. What is this? What is this? I'm so used to it now. My printer prints. How long has it been going like that? Ten years. Ten years? You think that's it? Yeah, you've got to shut it off. Why didn't you no, just... I can't shut it off, Fred. In the manual, it says, do not interrupt the printing queue. He said he was busy. I didn't want to bother him. I just wanted him to go about his business. You know, I'm... Who? Prince. I feed it paper every night, and it's kind of like a pet. Do you see what it's printing? It's not even printing anything out, just an error message. Yes, I thought it was just getting itself ready to print. For 10 years? Yes, learning the code. I stand before you guilty of excessive energy consumption. I didn't realize that you could actually stop the printing queue merely by turning the machine on and off. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, May 31st, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Paul McKeever. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, this is our last broadcast before next week's Ontario election, and both you and I here today, Paul, have been very much involved in that election. I know you've been on the trail and you've got some interesting observations to make about what you've seen on that election trail. But before our discussion gets underway, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, Paul, there does not seem to be any pretense anymore of trying to balance budgets. No. <laughs> or even slow down with spending increases. There's just, there's just no pretense. It's like a drunken orgy of spending. Yeah, I'm not sure what the what the uh, electorate ultimately is going to say when they catch up to this flurry of spending announcements, but it seems to me that at some point the media and their commentary is going to come to bear and say, look, uh, I mean, there's already some some commentary to the effect that none of these plans are serious, that they're all spendthrift plans, and that's absolutely true. Um, you know, and in one of the cases, the, in the case of the uh, progressive conservatives, they haven't even bothered, uh, you know, writing out a budget or, or pre- presenting a platform of any kind, a costed plan. They're just throwing numbers at us. 
and most of the de- uh, most of the detail- details of their uh, proposals are completely and utterly lacking. So Doug Ford gets off a bus. He says, uh, we're in favor of making X, Y, or Z better. And it gets back on the bus. And he hopes that that makes a headline. I think that's not working as much for him now as it was maybe a week or two ago. And I think that's because the polls are starting to show uh, with the uh, Epsos poll showing that the NDP had pulled ahead of the PCs by one point at 39% uh, for the NDP. I think it was 38% for the uh, for the PCs. That now the now the uh, focus seems to be on you know not so much what is Doug Ford's announcement of the day, but uh, what is Doug Ford going to do to deal with what the media wants to portray as a juggernaut in the NDP. Well, it's interesting. You think Kathleen Wynne is no longer a factor in this election? I think she's fading fast. You know, I was just watching uh, uh, the Preakness there on the weekend. And uh, this is, you know, a really good analogy. People people talk about elections as horse races. Of course, we're only talking about statistics uh, as the election goes on. But there is a feel of a horse race uh, when you're watching this election in particular, because you saw uh, early on um, the PCs came in uh, leading. that looked like they were going to um, certainly have a majority. Now things are looking... Uh, a little doubtful. People are starting to wonder if maybe um, uh, the NDP could pull it off or whether there will be a minority government. Uh, and you're right. I think the liberals have just faded away. I don't think anybody looking at Kathleen Wynne now is looking at a winner or feeling like they're looking at a winner. In fact, uh, one of her own campaign people went golfing in California. It was on Twitter. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there he was smiling for the camera. How how uh, interested could he be in the in the idea that his party's going to win if he's not even taking it seriously? He's just out there in California golfing. So, yeah, I think uh, the liberals are looking pretty much like they're done. Uh, it's come down to um, the other parties. So, you well, know, if I, you know, if I may say, we, you know, you and I decided on the show today that we wanted to look first at m- mainly the fiscal issues, which you seem to indicate were almost exclusively what the other parties are talking about. And then we'll spend the second half of the show looking at what we would regard as the social issues that are so avoided by the major parties. But, you know, you talked about it being a horse race. I almost see it more like a frenzy of some sort. It's like the proverbial spending of drunken sailors. You know, the leaders of all the other political parties are falling over themselves to each outspend the other. But unlike the drunken sailors, our politicians are outspending each other with our money. And that is just un, unconscionable to me. And, and they're in this frenzy of state spending that leaves me thinking, is the ship going down? Are we in an emergency? Are we in, like, is the boat sinking? That's how desperate all this spending seems to be. The only solution they have to each crisis is to make sure it gets money. And then on top of that, they promise more spending. Right. Yeah, I think they're acting as though things are so bad now, what's another $7 billion? <laughs> that's you know, exactly right. Yeah, that, that seems to be the attitude that at this point, things are so badly off that, you know, we have um, the biggest subnational debt in the world for, for Ontario. We've got uh, deficit spending that looks like it's around $12 billion per year. Uh, any of these numbers seems higher than what these parties are putting out, but the numbers that the parties are putting out for their brand new spending plans are all in the 5 and 10 and $15 billion over two, three, four years. So it's, it's outrageous amounts of spending at a time when none of the three of them has any plan at all, not even a proposal, to balance the budget. It's not even a, a, a concern for them. They're saying, what the heck with that? That's yesterday's news. That's yesterday's concern. We're not going to balance things anymore. Let's just spend so, so that everybody has what they need. 
Well, of course, that just means that we're all going to have to pay for, for each of those programs. They're, 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 I think they've gotten to the point where they believe that the taxpayer and the, and the voter doesn't understand that they're the ones ultimately paying for all these programs. And I think they're just capitalizing on that naivete. I don't know if it's that. I think that people do understand. You hear it all the time. I hear the complaint on talk show, um, you know, radio talk shows where people will call in, you know, it's not our, it's not your money, it's our money, mm-hmm. it's the taxpayer money. They understand, but they feel helpless. And they don't feel as if they have a place to go to, to get relief. And at the same time, they value those social programs that some of that spending covers. How, how do you reconcile that? I mean, that's, that's the problem that every political party is facing, isn't it? Well, here's the other thing I've been noticing about this election in particular. But, I mean, it's every election. You're going to see the parties always making their spending promises, right? Mm-hmm. Because they understand that a you know, significant percentage of the populace wants free stuff. They, they figure that their neighbor will pay for it. If they do understand that the money comes from, from the taxpayer, they, they figure that they're ultimately going to end up ahead if this program goes ahead because they won't be the one paying for it. And we see that with the other candidates in the riding of London North Centre. And the questions that were asked, what were they? Were there cost of living, high-speed rail, uh, cost of post-secondary education, pension security, the BRT. So every, you know, they want free transportation. They want free education. They want money that's going to be there in their, for, for a pension, whether the pension plan's made money or not. But don't they think they're paying for that? Like, I mean... They're paying their taxes, and they think that that's the premium that they're paying to get these benefits. I think that's the big hoodwink that governments have pulled over everyone's eyes since the PCs introduced OHIP. Yeah, I always look at this bit like stone soup, right? So the people who are... Stone soup. Yeah, yeah. You know the old story of stone soup. There were a couple of guys. They had nothing, nothing to eat. So they went into the village, each with a stone. And they said, you know, who's got a pot? And and they said, okay, now everybody's going to contribute something. And they each threw a stone in. And then every, everyone else in the village was throwing in carrots and cabbage and whatever else they had until they had a great big bowl, uh, you know, pot full of, of soup. And then everyone partook of the soup. Well, of course, the guys who did the whole scam, all they'd put in the soup was stones. So, you know, I think everyone likes to believe that ultimately they're the ones putting in the stones, but they're going to get a, a, a nice bowl of soup at the end of it if we all somehow cooperate and blank out and think that the other guy isn't putting stones in too. But, you know, despite all this attention that the Liberals and the PCs and the NDP are putting on fiscal issues, spending, 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 I think there's a hunger out there for the people who pay the bills, you know, the Mm -hmm. so-called rich and the so-called middle class and the so-called people who aren't paying their fair share, quote unquote. Those people are saying, look, I'm sick of being the sheep that's getting sheared. Who's going to save me? And... They're looking at these three parties. The reason they're so disheartened right now, and that's the report that we're hearing, that nobody's particularly excited about the PCs, Liberals, or NDP. The reason they're so disheartened is they see nobody speaking to them. They see this great frenzy of spending going on, and they know at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to end up paying for it. So, you know, I think what's happened is the PCs, Liberals, and NDP have said, we're all going to try and uh, serve the same subgroup of the of the voters and leave everyone else out. And that makes perfect sense. They think that maybe 60% want something for nothing and 40% don't. Uh, they've said, well, 60 is bigger than 40. I, we're going to put our lot in with the 60. The problem with that theory is that there's three of those parties and there's one Freedom Party. And I'll tell you this, I'd rather a Freedom Party get all of the 40% than get a third of the 60%. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, all you need to win even a majority government in this province, as we've seen, is somewhere in the range of 18 or 20 percent of the vote. So um, it doesn't take a lot to win. And, um, you know, who knows? Uh, there could be an upset here if enough people uh, on the paying end say, oh, well, I'm not going to, you know, countenance this. I'm going to go out and I'm going to vote on principle. Of course, we've heard, you and I have both heard of, you know, loyal progressive conservatives who hate everything their party is standing for, but still are going to vote PC because, well, it's their party. And they're grousing and grumbling about the fact that, you know, Freedom Party and Paul McKeever give all the policies they like, but they're still not going to vote that way because, heck, that would require some integrity. So, uh, you know, uh, we'll see. We'll see how many people have integrity, how many people are interested in their own futures, their own happiness, and how many are going to vote along partisan lines. I don't think many people do. I don't think that the that the parties in the, anymore are, are getting all that much loyalty. It's just the same as religion and organized uh, um, fraternities, you know, Lions Club and et cetera. All of these organizations, social organizations that used to be very strong and influential, I think now are getting marginalized. Anyone, we could speak for hours about why. I think that people are becoming more independent of one another. And that could only be a good thing at election time because it means they're not just going to be you know, saying, well, that's my party, right or wrong, they might just be saying, hey, which of these parties is offering a platform that's going to serve me best? Some socialists seem to believe that people should be numbers in a state computer. We believe they should be individuals. We're all unequal. No one, thank heavens, is quite like anyone else, however much the socialists may pretend otherwise. And we believe that everyone has the right to be unequal. But to us, every human being is equally important. A man's right to work as he will, to spend what he earns, to own property, to have the state as servant and not as master. They are the essence of a free economy. And on that freedom, all our other freedoms depend. The very first day I was involved in politics, Al Gretzky was there, Mary Lou Ambrosio was there. And look at where the three of us find ourselves now. Not sitting at a dinner for a mainstream party, not anyone in a position of elected office, but years later, all of us individually wound up here. There seems to be an evolution that takes place, which is starting at a point where you look at the mainstream and think that's all there is. And the very first person in this room to ever say there has to be another way is Bob Metz, who's thankfully, and we just owe him another round of applause, has been rewarded for seeing that 30 years ago. (laughs) I was originally going to speak about that evolution, about going from someone who sees parties like the Freedom Party that aren't really represented in the mainstream to actually making that decision to vote for them. And And I realized when I was kind of thinking of this that there's really no point because everyone in the room has already gone through that. If anything, I'm the late arrival to this. There's a difference between the conservative party and the conservative value. A difference between a party that has a name and the actual essence of what that means. The actual essence of what conservatism is. And to me, that's where it gets into the bigger issue here. Is that we need to stop becoming a party-focused country. A party-focused media, a party-focused electorate. And start focusing on ideology. It takes a lot more courage 
to run for office when you know you won't win than when you think you can. And the reason that I wanted to bring to you on why I think that's important is because when you run as a PC candidate, there's one rule above everything else. The first rule is that you don't have to think. You're told what to say. You're told how to answer every question. You aren't even allowed to choose the color scheme on your own darn signs. And one of the things that actually really drew me to the Freedom Party was the fact that they were capturing something, and by they I mean you, capturing something that the average politician doesn't understand, which is that you need to give someone something they understand. When a politician gets out in front of you and says, we just earmarked $3.7 billion for this, people go, what? Okay, how do I change the channel? Because they don't understand how that's going to affect them. So I'm standing here today not because I'm running for office. I can assure you that's not happening. I'm standing here today because I want you to know how important it is to keep going, to not be discouraged, to utilize whatever means are available, whether it's this new fandangled thing called YouTube, <laughs> or whether it's running for office and standing up on a debate stage and holding every single person on that stage to account. Do whatever you can. But know that freedom is a value worth sharing. Freedom is something that people need to understand. And just because we're not headed towards necessarily a Freedom Party majority doesn't mean we aren't headed towards freedom. And that's, I think, the big thing that people need to recognize is that someone needs to fight for freedom because we know it sure as heck ain't happening in Toronto right now. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, that was Andrew Lawton, who is the current PC candidate in London West, speaking at a Freedom Party dinner only a few short years ago. Okay, Paul, so there's no party out there for the people, but the people believe that perhaps one of those parties is for them, not Freedom Party, and one of those parties everyone's considering that we get a lot of flack over is, of course, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. And I have in my hand here one of the ads that was put out by Doug Ford in the PCs, and it goes along like this. You know, Ontario is broke. Kathleen Wynne is desperate because she knows her, that her liberal insiders are to blame. People can hardly afford to keep their lights on. The CEO of Hydro One's making $6 million a year. Our healthcare system's a mess. Not enough long-term beds to keep the emergency rooms free for emergencies. And Kathleen Wynne's plans are to keep the price of everything up, etc., etc. He says, we won't get fooled again. He says, I'm, a, I'm representing what a government for the people would look like, and here's what he's offering. A tax credit, so people earning minimum wage pay no tax. A real plan to lower hydro bills by 12%. A child care plan to rebate up to 75% of the cost of daycare. And then he says he's going to announce a plan to keep money from mining, forestry, and aggregates in the communities where it's earned. Because that money doesn't belong to Queen's Park, it belongs to the people of Ontario. And there you go, hearing that same argument again. Yeah, boy, oh boy. You know? and, 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 you know, to think of, you know, a, a time and an age, here we are, when things like a tax credit to people earning minimum wage pay no tax. Okay, look, let, let's break this down. For a long time, there has been this, even in conservative circles, this has been this idea, we will relieve people at the lowest uh, mm -hmm. income brackets from the obligation of having to pay income tax. That is not a conservative policy, and I'll explain why. 
if you're talking fiscal conservatism, if you're talking fiscal responsibility, and if you're talking political conservatism, it's just absolutely backwards. It's a form of wealth redistribution. Well, not only that, think about what you're doing. Let's say that uh, 20% of the populace has a personal exemption that, that covers entirely all the money they make, so they don't pay any income tax. And let's say that the conservative then says, well, I'm going to increase the personal exemption so that now people earning you know, double that won't have to pay income tax. So what has he just done? He's just taken, uh, doubled the number of people who don't pay income tax and who therefore have absolutely no opposition to the income tax. That's right. They see it only as a benefit to them. Hey, this is my neighbor getting sheared. I'm only benefiting from this because I don't have to pay it. See, a proper way to do a, a deduction from income tax, tax relief, is to say everyone pays the tax. Everyone. Even if they're only paying $1.98 a year. But they're, they're in it. They have skin in the game. And if they're opposed uh, to getting having to pay that $1.98 or that $198 or the $19,000, whatever it might be, um, then great. Everyone wins. The, the tax is opposed by the greatest number of people. There's always pressure by everyone to reduce that income tax rate. What they're doing here with this, you know, tax credit so people earning minimum wage pay no tax, you're just telling people, that, you know, giving them an incentive to earn minimum wage. That's right. Now look at this one. Plan, you mentioned this, a real plan to lower hydro bills by 12%. Well, you know what that means. You yeah. can't just lower it by 12%. Everyone's, you know, using a different amount, etc. The only way you can lower it by 12% is by paying for 12% of it. Exactly. Right? Well, who, who's so paying for that? How are they? Yeah, well, the government. Wait a minute, who's that right? again? That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's the taxpayer. So what they're saying is instead of paying it on your bill, you'll pay it yeah. in the way of other taxes. Yeah. Sales taxes, income taxes, fuel taxes, green taxes, you name it. I promise to take money. it out of your right pocket and back pocket instead of your left pocket. Exactly right. This is a non, uh, just, it, it's a complete joke. It's not conservatism. It's, it's a shell game, really. Uh, look at this other one. A child care plan to rebate up to 75% of the cost of daycare. Look, at one point, I had two children in daycare. I was paying 20000 after-tax dollars for daycare. 20000 per year. And, uh, I mean, I, I'm almost certain that uh, under his plan, almost nobody qualifies for the for the rebate. But let's say well, that I, I was where Mary Lou and I were laughing at this ad we saw about this just a couple of weeks ago. Licensed care, independent care, babysitters, nannies, after school programs. They're going to rebate it all, right? And I'm going. <laughs> what are they talking about? And this this is supposed to be a conservative government, right? Well, in a conservative government, my gosh! I mean, I had a debate, and they were talking about um, high speed re- uh, high speed rail that would run from Windsor to London to Toronto. Now, clearly, all this is is an attempt to make Toronto the center of the universe and to turn London and Windsor into nothing but suburbs where nobody works, where everybody commutes to Toronto to work. And um, of course, with as with all these rapid transit plans, they never make any money. They always are in the hole, which means they always have to be subsidized by the taxpayer. Well, lo and behold, they ask me and all the other uh, panelists, there was the PC, Liberal, NDP, and Green pa- uh, candidates there today, and they ask, and of course the PC candidate says this, Doug Ford has spent his life working on improving public transit, mass transit for the people. Okay, and she says, and I be, and, you know, the PC party is 100% in favor of the rapid transit plan from Windsor to Toronto. This is a liberal Big subsidized, big government plan for for socialized transportation. 
I couldn't believe it that they were coming out and blatantly saying so. The BRT, the, the bus rapid transit, that's the local mm-hmm. uh, in, oh, yeah. inc- incarnation. Oh, yeah. uh, I said to them, uh, you know, look, I'm absolutely against the, the BRT. Now, the PC candidate on the radio the other day had tried this weasel move where she said, well, uh, Doug Ford's PCs have confirmed that they will not uh, retract the $170 million already pledged by the Liberal government. But I'm not in favor of the BRT, so a different transit plan I'd be in favor of. Now, why? She says, oh, because Londoners don't want the BRT. Look, they don't just not want the BRT. They don't want to pay for the BRT or any other transit plan. They want to it's pay amazing for their own to cars. Me. You know, I've, I've watched just bureaucrats and politicians move in and plan all these mega projects as if, those, as if these are the issues that the average Ontarian wakes up every morning worrying about. And they're planning all these spending programs to move us around from one place to another that nobody wants to go to and isn't even defined. Well, and in the case of BRT, what does it do? It gets people out of cars by increasing traffic congestion. That's the plan. Increase traffic congestion so people say, to heck with driving the car, I'll pay for public transit. They're trying to bribe people, in other words, or pressure them, coerce them into these buses. But it's not just about the, the, uh, the congestion. If you read the whole BRT plan, it's straight out of, uh, you know, Stalinist mm-hmm. Russia. And I, I'm no, not even not. joking. In Stalinist no, Ru- no, in Stalinist Russia, what they did is they wanted uh, an urbanization that would create in human be- a, a new class of humans uh, called Soviet man. And what, what did you do? Well, you put everybody in these very plain, very tall, very small apartment units, make everybody live together. And then no cars. Uh, right into the early 80s, most people living in the Soviet Union did not have a car or drive a car. Everyone took public transit. This is a result of Khrushchev mm-hmm. and Stalin years. Mm-hmm. So everyone's living in these, these ugly apartments, really tight-packed things, taking a train to work, taking a train back to home. Their whole life consists of getting out of one sardine can into another, working in a factory, get, jumping back in a sardine can and coming back. And why? Because the Soviet government couldn't stand the thought that some people would have, you know, a detached home, a lawn, some trees, some chirping birds, kids playing in the backyard safely. No, instead, a great big concrete jungle with winds being blown mm-hmm. out. You know, you put those 20-store buildings up, all you get is huge wind blowing around them. You get long-cast shadows, no sunlight. You know, if you walk no, the course, streets of downtown you know, people Toronto. People hearing you say this, you're going, well, that's the Soviet Union. Our, our technology is better. We have beautiful buildings. We have Western standards. It's a different thing, isn't it? No, not at all. Because uh, if you read the BRT plan, they say, we'll, we'll, uh, I think it's 30% they want to increase the high density or intensified um, uh, you know, living conditions. 20-story buildings, where right now stand one-story uh, homes or, or buildings. Um, they want, uh, there's going to be no parking requirements, which means there's not going to be anywhere to park your car uh, along the main routes. They want to set up, they literally call them transit villages, right? On, on basically like a cross around Sounds London, like north, south, east and west. It's like a <laughs> camp. And, you, and these ones are going to be 22 stories high. And basically, the, you know, you, 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 just like in the Soviet Union, you go downstairs, you take your train, you go to downtown London, you do your shopping, you go back out to your, your quarter. Um, if you look at the way the Soviet Union looks now, that's what London will look like 20, 30, 40 years hence if they go ahead with this. A dank dark, dangerous place where there's no peace, no birds, no, no safety for children. It's just like a big downtown concrete jungle. And I think this is absolutely backwards. But guess who's in favor of it? 
those progressive oh, conservatives. Yeah. They've committed money to, to the whole scheme. They're, they're right on board. So, you know, everybody's talking money, and even the so-called conservatives. You know, the liberals are saying, what a stark contrast there is between the liberals and the conservatives. No. I don't see it. They're all adopting one and another's reason for that. You know, I'm looking at this article by David Reevely of May 4th. And the headline reads, Province Failing to Grade Grants, Watchdog Reveals. Okay? Mm. And the article speaks in terms of economics, which is missing the whole point. He writes, the Ontario government spends more than a billion dollars a year on subsidies and tax credits for businesses without even trying to figure out whether they work, which sounds like Doug Ford's plan. Ontario's Financial Accountability Office reported... The, quote, the province has not attempted to determine if a company receiving a grant would have made the same project investment without that grant. They didn't even check to see, end quote. Right. So you get the point. They're just giving the money out without it even being asked for, which has happened with a number of, of industries that we've heard of in the, in the country. But I think when he says that the province is failing to grade these grants, I think he's wrong. They are grading them. But they're grading them according to political goals, not according... Yeah, did it, did get, it us get us votes? Yeah. And, yeah. and if you don't get that, David, really, then you don't know why this is happening at all. You haven't got a clue. Well, and the perfect example of that is moving those gas yeah. plants. Now, that's getting a, yeah. that's a pretty stale issue. But if everyone remembers why they did it, they to moved the votes. gas plants. Yeah, they were two ridings, two seats, that for which they spent $1.1 billion of taxpayer money. I mean, my God, campaign finance yeah, reform now can you see Can you see him writing the same article about that and saying, well, you know, the province didn't really attempt to see if we got value for money for that, right? Because, yes, they did. The, the, the political parties that put it in place got exactly what they wanted out of that, and that was elected. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, looking for Mr. Uh, Drucker. Oh, that's me. Oh, my name is Douglas, Oliver Wendell Douglas. Pleased to meet you. Douglas, Oliver Wendell Douglas? You got enough name for two fellers. <laughs> no, there's no Douglas at the front of it. It's just plain Oliver Wendell Douglas. Well, that ain't very plain. <laughs> I'm Joe Carson, manager of the Shady Rest Hotel. You looking for a place to stay? No, no, I... Uh... I'm Floyd Smoot, and that there's Fred Ziffel. Well, I'm glad to meet you. You too, Mr. Ziffel? Yes, sir, howdy. And this is Arnold. I'll say hello to Mr. Uh... Douglas, Oliver Wendell Douglas. But you said there wasn't any Douglas in front of him. There isn't. Uh, I wonder if you could help me, Mr. Drucker. I'll uh, be right with you. I don't want to miss my train. I understand it leaves for Pixie at 310. Well, you've got an hour and 20 minutes. It's 35 now. Yeah, if you want to leave at 310, you should have taken the 120. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to make a bus connection. I've got to get back to New York. Is there any other way I can get to Pixley? You could fly. I could? If you had a plane. <laughs> don't have a plane? Then I wouldn't figure on flying. <laughs> you can drive to Pixley if you want. I haven't got a car. Want to rent one? Yes, where? Pixley. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
It is time for the Friday Roundtable. Joined here in studio by former city councilor Hollywood Cheryl Miller, political insider Nathan Grancius here. So is uh, lawyer Ali Chabar. Good morning, everybody. Nice Good to morning. chat with you. Good morning, that was a great Mr. debate. I enjoyed it driving in. I Actually, it was almost late, but thank goodness you're a bit behind. Because <laughs> I was sitting in the parking lot listening. I thought it was well done. Good on you. Sa- same with thank me. I was, I was driving yeah. in. Uh, yeah. I actually got... I know we're going to talk about this. Got caught at the train at Oxford and Richmond, and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, at it's least over. I get some extra time to listen to this debate, right?" So, uh, true. but uh, Ali, you were early today. I, I think that was the first, by the way. I wasn't. So congratulations. I don't. Does I don't feel comfortable about it. I like to come in. We go to what time? You go to air eleven oh five, right? That's uh, right. Yeah. I like to get here at eleven oh four and thirty seconds. Person in the room. Usually, I just beat Cheryl in, or, right? And so, yeah. But different uh, this time because I had a bunch of extra commercials because I ran the debate too long. But oh. no, sorry about that, Victor. That's good. Uh, you're, you had the four parties here? I'll, yes, yes. No freedom? There was no freedom. No freedom There's party? no freedom. No communist party? <laughs> no communist no, party. No either. other parties that can't get to 2% there, uh, Craig? No, oh, 2% was our cutoff. Okay. Yes. Just, uh, you well, know. what about <laughs> the ones none of the above? Also, <laughs> not at 2%. I know. Right. Um, which is, yeah. Uh, the, the 2%, uh, you know what? I got some email heat for that this week. But oh, uh, really? the 2% cutoff is the cutoff elections Ontario uses for funding. I'm more than comfortable using it as the cutoff for our debates. We can't have a radio debate with seven people up there. But what happens well, if you're the leader of that less than 2% party? <laughs> don't you deserve a right to be here? If you're the leader mm. of the Freedom Party or the leader of the Communist Party, you don't get 2%, shouldn't you have a seat at this table? No. no. I agree. <laughs> you should not have a seat at this table. No. I had I, Paul McKeever Send your emails was, to me. And it was fine. Yes, please yeah. send your don't emails send to Don't yeah, yeah, I've, I've already done enough of that. <laughs> yeah, once you win a seat, once you win a seat, you can sit yeah, at the sure, table. Yeah, sure, and we can talk about that yeah. too. Once you crack 2%. Yeah, well, everybody's on fire it. today. I love it. We're all <laughs> yeah. shot out of a cannon. Yeah, McKeever. There we go. Uh, let's uh, get into the provincial election in general. And you've probably all seen the polling from this morning. And just for the record, that touted 2% justification is neither true nor relevant in Freedom Party's case. I know because I cashed the 2% checks that Freedom Party gets from the government. Talked about that on the show before. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archived broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. You know, Bob, we've talked a lot about these fiscal issues and how the focus in this election, perhaps as usual, seems to be Money. on... Uh, yeah, and who can mm-hmm. outspend the next? Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, it's a, it's a lot the same as in past elections. You know, where those, you know, how much money will you spend in healthcare? Or how much will you spend in education? It's something they can point to that's semi-visible. At yeah. least you can see it as yeah. a number on a book, even if you're not sure what you're getting for your money. Right. Although when you start talking about nine zeros, nobody really has a sense of what anyone's talking about. They just hear money, 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 and they figure, okay, it must be good. But historically, you could always count on progressive conservatives to pretend that they were the fiscally responsible ones. Uh, as we've just noticed, you know, I've gone through a number of these things. They've just thrown that all to the to the side. So you might say to yourself, okay, if they're not going to be fiscally conservative, if they're not even going to pretend anymore, you'd think they could at least distinguish themselves from liberals and NDP and Greens by sticking to some of the social issues that have come up. I mean, mainstream social issues. every day. You can't get away from them and they're not even addressing them. 
No, they're, they're not. I mean, in the old days, we used to laugh at the libertarians, and the, they're always uh, you know focused on these niche issues that no one really yeah. thought were even yeah. current or whatever, like helmet laws, bicycle helmet laws and stuff. And those things still matter to some people, but they were never current issues. That's different than now. There's social issues that are a big, big part in the, in the age of quote-unquote identity politics. And I know you've got a different spin on that. But what I mean by identity politics is sort of that mainstream definition where you say, oh, color of your skin, that's going to be one box. We put everybody into uh, gender, that's going to be another box and so on. In that age of identity politics, when it's infiltrated so many different parts of society and it's causing so many problems... You would think that uh, progressive conservatives would at least try to distinguish themselves from the liberals and NDP and the Greens on those bases. But again, we're seeing exactly the opposite. We saw it with mm -hmm. Patrick Brown, mm -hmm. who uh, handpicked a number of candidates because he didn't want the locally chosen person. The locally chosen person had expressed uh, their views on social issues. And we've seen it more recently uh, with that Tanya Granick Allen she was um, a social conservative uh, candidate for the leadership of the PC party. It's largely believed that uh, she's to be credited for Doug mm -hmm. Ford winning. Mm -hmm. And yet took all of one video recording or one audio recording to have Doug Ford kicking her off the, off well, the ballot. This is a party that has just famed itself on eating its own, one after the other, and not coming to the defense of their own candidates on perfectly legitimate ground. They won't yeah. go there. And... All these social issues, they're so easy to address. They don't require a lot of money, if any at all. That's right. They're, they're just switches in what will be a priority or how things will be dealt with. I mean, take, for example, you know, the, the federal government is legalizing, or they say they're going to, legalize, you know, uh, recreational use of, of cannabis by, you know, July 1, I think it is. So what's happened? Well, okay, the Liberal government came up with a whole bu bunch of new amendments to various statutes, smoking laws, where you can smoke, what you can smoke, and etc. And when it came to cannabis, they essentially said, none of these rules apply if you're a medical user of cannabis. But if you're a non-medical user, if you're a recreational user, then here's the rule, you can only smoke it in your own house. The end. No vapor lounges. No smoking vaporizers outside, even though nobody smells mm -hmm. them and they're not really noticeable. So you would think, okay, here's an opportunity for conservatives to say, we take a distinctly different view. Nope. They want to stay so far away from the cannabis product altogether that they've instead, you know, I think there was a whole 24-hour period where Doug Ford said, oh, you know, uh, we're in favor of a private sector sale, retail of, of cannabis. That took all of about 24 hours for his own party to say, hello, what party do you, you think know, you're you in? You see the irony in that? that if he had adopted that free market stance, he could have distanced his party from that issue. And now what? Now right. he is part of the pot regime. Yeah, he said that he's in favor 100% yep. of the yep. Kathleen Wynne government monopoly on cannabis. But you'd think, okay, well, okay, well, fine. Fiscally, you're going to be the same as the liberals. What about socially? Are you going to change where, how, and when people can consume cannabis? Nope. Absolute and utter silence. He's allowing the liberals to dictate public policy with respect to cannabis. Just won't touch it. But this isn't the only kind of thing. I mean, that's a, you know, that only affects a certain percentage of the populace. We've seen in the newspapers, mainstream newspapers, Globe and Mail, etc., things like, for example, due process. You know, keep in mind, the only reason Doug Ford's the leader right now is because two anonymous people hiding in the shadows under disguised voices got on CTV one night 
and made allegations that they were subjected to uh, some kind of sexual misconduct. We don't know if what they were alleging was was uh, meant to be criminal or not. We do know that the person they were talking about is now suing CTV. Mm-hmm. Patrick uh, Brown. Yeah, Patrick Brown for, for libel. Good for him. Because that those allegations never went any further than two people hiding in the shadows with disguised voices. Clearly, someone didn't want to come to uh, justify those uh, those allegations, and I think he might be looking at a good chunk of change when the, when, uh, when all is said and done. Well, due process. As a result of the MPPs and et cetera, turfing their own party leader just months before the election starts, he's left in a situation where he can't talk about due process. So, you know, due, due process, who's talking about that? Well, just Freedom Party. Well, thank you very much for that issue, because what we're saying is, these kangaroo courts that they've been setting up, the liberals have been setting up, saying that anybody complains about any kind of unwelcome comment in the workplace and suddenly the employer has to spend thousands of dollars investigating. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, First of all, the employers are trying to do things like sell cars, make cars, build buildings. Pardon me, but it's actually criminal. It it really is. And, And so they're forced to go to this expense all because somebody who in many cases is just trying to get even with someone who, you know, who is lying just to get even with someone, they still have to go to the expense. I mean, when did policing become an employer's obligation? Well, that happened when the liberals made it so. And this would have been a perfect social conservative issue to, to uh, oppose. But of course, PCs being what they are, they've, they shot themselves in the foot and, and don't want anything to do with defending the, the innocent. They don't care about the, the presumption of innocence. They don't care about having legitimate proceedings and having findings of fact based on F, uh, on evidence before making sweeping generalizations and doing punishment. So they utterly fail on due process. And look at the um, uh, even the free speech issue. I, I had to laugh. I mean, it, I think what happened on the campaign trail for the PCs is they, they were running out of ideas. They wanted a new idea every day so that they could have a new uh, uh, story written about them each day. And so they started plucking you know, the, the least offensive aspects of Freedom Party's platform. And so we saw one of them, for example, you know, Freedom Party has a fairly elaborate platform on um, free speech, academic freedom, public safety to deal with what's mm-hmm. going on in the universities. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what's going on in the universities. People are coming to, we've seen it over the years, uh, Ann Coulter, the University of Ottawa, uh, Jordan Peterson. Uh, and so all they have to do, these social justice warriors, is, you know, pull a fire alarm or send an email on social, uh, they don't even have to send an email, they can just put something on social media saying, calling all ne'er-do-wells, come on out and disrupt <laughs> the event. And so suddenly the university cracks down and says, well, we demand a $20,000 depar- uh, 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 deposit, or we want you to have so much spent on policing. And of course, the students who don't have the money, who are just trying to get educated on various issues, say, well, I guess we have to cancel the event. And then, of course, the social justice warriors win. Now, that's an easy one to deal with because Ontario already has police. And these events don't happen that frequently. So, I mean, the Freedom Party solution is if you get one of those situations where someone's threatened to use violence or intimidation, immediately you should be able to call your student organization that's organizing the event, should be able to call the police. There should be a a unit of the police that come out, police the event. Anybody there with a black mask carrying a club, uh, you know, threatening violence, standing in the face of people trying to enter the building, etc. Anybody coming in with a loudspeaker and blasting over the auditorium so that nobody can, can be heard. Those people need to be physically removed and or charged, but certainly they're breaching the peace. And there's nothing against the, uh, uh, the criminal code when, when it comes to that for, uh, you know, t- police to take such people 
hold them in a cell for a few hours until the event's over and let, let them go. We saw that in uh, Caledonia, yes. for example, yes. where people were protesting by simply using the Canadian flag to uh, protest secessionists. And the secessionists got violent. What did they do? They took the people who were just walking by with the Canadian flag, Mark Vandermas and Gary McHale, and they threw them in jail. No, that we, we thought that was unjust because they weren't using any violence. They weren't using any intimidation. They were simply walking down the sidewalk with the Canadian flag. But these thugs who are going onto, uh, onto campuses, they need to be dealt with. And we already have the policing resources, et cetera. It simply requires the will. Where were the conservatives on this? Silent. Why? Because they don't want to be seen to be defending people whose views might be well, That's a good point. They don't you know, want to be seen. And the irony, yeah. too, is that having the police there, that's a proper function of government. You know, that's what government's for to protect life, liberty, and property, you guys. Come on, get it straight. (laughs) And the students shouldn't be paying for that either. That's a standard function of the the government. There again, we're all paying for it in our taxes, aren't we? And that's the one thing we're not getting when we need it. Absolutely right. So, the facts are now all in. The evidence has been heard. And I'm therefore ready to pronounce sentence. General Burkhardt, sir... This is not meant as a criticism, General Burkhalter. You are doing an excellent job in judging this case, but uh, may I point out that uh, we have not heard the evidence? Of course not. Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. My informants are my own, and I personally dictated your confession so that I'm sure it is correct. (laughs) Oh, that's most efficient, sir. So you've got the one sort, the men, and they have the bit that sticks out. They're like us. Yeah. But you think there should be another sort? Yeah, I think there should be another sort. What for? I think there should be another sort who, where the men have got the bit that sticks out, they should have a bit that goes in, sort of a hole. What, to help stacking? Yeah, it would help stacking. They'd really tessellate well. So I'm not sure it would, actually. I'm not sure it would go in that easily. I think you'd have to sort of work it in, because it's got no purchase, because it's floppy. No, it wouldn't, because the thing that sticks out, that could change shape. It could go sort of rigid. What, when you need to stack them? Yeah, only for stacking. I think that's a bit fussy, just for stacking. I think it would be worth it if it was useful for something other than stacking. Okay, let's have a think. Well, let's just make it simpler. How about the baby comes out of the hole? That's not simple at all. The baby is the bit that sticks out of the man. What, the bit that goes rigid for stacking? Yeah, and then one day, the bit that sticks out of the man just detaches itself and starts walking around. And that's the baby. But it's only got one eye and no arm. Well, it develops into a baby. What, and the man grows another bit that sticks out? Exactly. Yeah, but having gone to the trouble of giving the other sort this hole, it's now completely redundant. Well, there's always the stacking. Hmm. See, I'm wondering how often we're going to need to stack them. Well, you know, Paul, last week on the show I was talking about what has been called the gender gap Mm. and the whole idea of having to have wages equal and other issues equal and, of course, the whole issue of 
gender identities and pronouns. And one of the things I see in the gender gap is that there is no gap. Everybody's talking about a gap in income, which is perfectly natural. If you start off everybody equally at 12 o'clock noon on any given day, give them all the equal amount of monopoly money, by 12.01, everybody will have a gap between what each person owns. Or, yeah, and and you could even have like a height gap because you're taller than I am. You could say, look at all the the, the tall guys. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of the whole concept of gender gap. It, 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 It begets an agenda as soon as you hear the word gap. And that was one of the conclusions I arrived at last week. But, of course, it's a bigger issue than that, and it's the whole social issue of using language and forced language to suppress speech to create an environment where we can't talk about these issues. Isn't that part of the discomfort that parties like the PCs and I guess the rest of them have with these issues? They've already been... Look what's happened to Andrew Lawton being called a racist, as as are all so many of them. I can't keep track anymore. Right. Well, that's the standard go-to language, right? If you're if you're uh, taking issue with what they're doing in in terms of collectivism, collectivizing people according to all these various different things, gender, sex, race, uh, they, they think that they're doing justice by by doing collectivism. And the collectives to see one race, the human race, is to somehow be in favor of of racism, sexism, etc. When they talk about identity politics, don't they just mean racism and sexism? Well, they mean racism and sexism, but we've also seen, in, and they're starting young, Bob, they're, they're getting right into the schools, grade three, under the, the win gender agenda, for example. Another, another place where the progressive conservatives have just dropped the ball entirely. Why? Well, because in the, in the current agenda, what happens is that young, young children are told that biology and gender are not linked. In other words, that while there might be uh, males and females, and there might only be two sexes, there's all kinds of genders, in other words, there's all kinds of beliefs about what you really are despite your biology. Now, this idea of gender theory uh, and various genders, more than two genders or more than more genders than sexes, it really all comes out of a, of a desire to uh, legitimize what is actually regarded by the, uh, the DSM, uh, which is used by psychiatrists. Uh, they call it gender dysphoria. It's a mental illness in the sense that it can cause people great distress. So if, if believing that you're a woman trapped in a man's body causes you great distress, they regard that as a mental illness. In fact, before, beforehand, they never used to say that the distress is required. Simply the belief made you ill. And of course, that is actually rational because the belief is not in accord with reality. You are not a woman trapped in a man's body any more than you're a unicorn or a turtle trapped in a man's body. But what they want children at the age of three to learn that what they see, hear, smell, taste, etc., the senses, what they can see with their own eyes, is not to be trusted. Yes, that's, that that's absolutely is criminal. Child it abuse. is criminal. They want it is child abuse. They want people to be trained at the at the level of grade three that reality depends on what's in your mind, not your mind depending on what's in reality. Fantasy trumps reality is what they're trying to teach people. That is the core problem with gender. Gender, you know, it, it wouldn't matter whether it was about gender or, as I say, about unicorns or whatever. You, you could, they could have the same kind of agenda where they said, um, believing that your Superman is perfectly okay and, and you are Superman if you believe you are, or, or you're Napoleon if you believe you are, and everybody has a duty to call you Napoleon if you believe you're Napoleon. That is wrong. Uh, it's, it's detaching children's minds from facts of reality. It's I was going to just say that. It's very intentional. And 
And and the broad game here is to is to have a situation where children become adults who believe that the facts of reality are not what you see. The facts of reality are what yeah, people everything's believe fake them to news. be. <laughs> everything's fake news. Everything fantasy trumps reality. They want to get children early. So this should be obvious, certainly to social conservatives. Uh, but what what are we seeing in the Progressive Conservative Party? A complete and utter abandonment uh, of this gender issue. What are they doing in the schools? Doug Ford says. Oh, yes, we've got to get rid of Kathleen Wynne's gender agenda. Well, we have to institute it later. So instead of instituting at grade three, we do it at a more age-appropriate state. Look, at what age is it appropriate to believe that if you're a hammer, you really are a hammer? <laughs> you know, that, that, that your beliefs that you're a hammer trump the reality that you're not a hammer. There is no appropriate age at which to believe falsehoods. So... But what are we seeing? We're seeing progressive conservatives say, well, we'll teach gender, gender theory in grade seven or eight instead of grade three. Look, you're still twisting people's minds. So again, here we have Freedom Party saying, no, we're pulling that. There is no correct age to teach gender studies. If you want to teach fantasy as fact, leave it to university. We're not going to teach that in a publicly funded school. It's disinformation and it serves a political agenda. We all know what it is. Uh, it's got nothing to do with gender or sex or uh, sexuality. It's got everything to do with getting people to disregard the facts of reality and believe what they're told by the government. The same thing goes with this uh, whole language, which is part of the current school teaching of, it's, of It has reading. been a development ever since the whole Dewey system of yeah. teaching, right? Yeah. And Isabel Patterson right. talked about it in the 1930s. It's developed. It's the idea of getting away from individual instruction into group instruction and group learning and group experiences as if, and you can feel your way through sounding out letters instead of learning phonics, which is the proper way to do it, as I was taught. Yeah. Reading was a given when I was a kid. Today, how many kids are going to high school and universities who literally cannot still read? I hear this from professors and teachers all the time. I taught at the university level. I was a teaching assistant at the University of Western Ontario. And I was teaching, I believe it was third-year psychology students. I was grading their, their uh, research papers. They were using sentences with no mm -hmm. verbs in them. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, they would say things like this. The subject, period. Mm -hmm. The subject <laughs> what? What did the subject do? You know, oh, do I have to say? Yeah, that's kind of important in a sentence. <laughs> you know? They actually thought at the third year le level of university that they were writing properly. Uh, that's an utter failure. And, and that proves, of course, because I was, that, you know, I was having a TA since uh, the early 1990s. That was the result of what was instituted as early as the 1970s, of course, and, and 80s, because these people had been trained, or not rather not trained, uh, since that time on how not to, <laughs> not, how not to read. Um, you know, and with respect to math, uh, this experiential learning, I'll give you an example of what, what people often don't know what it, this experiential learning is, but I think I can concretize it pretty easily. Imagine you're teaching physics, because this actually happened to one of my sons. Experiential learning in, in this physics context meant uh, they were doing projectile motion. So they said, we want you to build a functional trebuchet, which is like a, a device that you've seen it in Lord of the Rings. It throws things at great distance, mm -hmm. a big arm that throws things. Well, um, if you got the physics principles right, you'd be able to build one and you'd be able to describe the principles. But under experiential learning, 
It doesn't matter if you learn anything. It doesn't matter if you learn projectile physics. What matters is that you made a good effort, that you went through the process of, of exploration. And as a result, they, they had set up a set of system where you could still get an A by decorating your trebuchet. Even it didn't function. It didn't work at all. I remember walking into the classroom and seeing this one uh, that a group of students had been working on. It didn't work at all. Uh, but they painted it like Blue's Clues. It's an a animated show for kids called Blue's Clues. The one that didn't work, that d did not demonstrate the physical principles of projectile motion, but that was painted like Blue's cr Clues, got the same mark as the trebuchet that actually worked, that was built yes. on understanding of physical principles. This is not learning. Well, I can tell you what it is. This is... It's the philosophy of whole language, which to sum it up in a phrase that just came back to my mind and is still practiced today, quote, success for every student, end quote. Right. And what right. they're doing is selling artificial success, selling artificial self-esteem. Self and is it any wonder that we see increasing drug abuse, increasing self-abuse, increasing poverty? You know, th these are not unrelated things. And I realize we haven't got much time left on the show, but you know, it, this has been a very short election, this Ontario election. Yep. Uh, incredibly short. And what has made it even shorter, beyond the time factor, is that none of the parties had their acts together in time for anybody to know what it is that they were dealing with. So, you think our next election is like 18 months away or looks like the uh, NDP and PCs are in a, in a uh, neck and neck situation and when that happens when, especially when the NDPs actually appoint ahead I think we're going to see the emptying of the Liberal Party into the PC ranks that it would only take about five points and they'd, and they'd win not only win but win a majority I think depending on the distribution of the, of the votes but I think that can happen but I mean what a pathetic situation Bob we've got and, and don't forget this is an election where every vote cast is paid for by the taxpayer and goes to the party that that vote is cast for. That, has, that is just unconscionable. That is no longer democracy, but it's a fact. So keep that in mind when you're voting in Ontario this election. Where do you want your tax dollars to go to in terms of political parties, yeah. private organizations? Yeah. $10 a ballot is going to whatever party you, you yeah, cast your ballot in favor of. It's, it's absurd. And we're, we're part of a party, but we don't agree with this at all. No, we, we, we would, would repeal it. You know, but I'm happy, to, I'm happy about this election, Bob. I'm excited by the fact that because the PCs have decided just to mimic uh, the, the uh, Liberal and NDP fiscal policies, not to question them, not to offer, uh, even suggest that they want to balance the budget, and having turned their back entirely on these social issues because mm -hmm. they're afraid of them, mm -hmm. uh, the cowardice is there, uh, they've left the, the field wide open for Freedom Party candidates to fill uh, the needs of, of those who think that we need change on the social side, and a balanced, responsible budget on the fiscal side. So yeah, it's a good and election. we've had a lot of new people come forward who are ready to run in 18 months or more, should that be the next election. We don't know when the next election's coming, but we do know when our next show is coming, and that's next week, one week from today. So join us again then, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Next! I'm Kelly Bundy and the dream of my life is to become a polka dot 
So here's a little cheer that I wrote myself. <laughs> P-O-K-E, okay, yay! <laughs> Very good, but it's P-O-L-K, pokai. You know, after President James K. Polk. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, Miss Mount? I like her. I like her a lot. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations, Miss Bundy. You are now a polk dot. I'm so excited. Congratulations, Ellie! 